1: Next up, on the Mutual Audio Network, fiction from our future. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended.
2: Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for being here tonight. What a welcome, welcome sight to look out into this great historic theater and see no empty seats. My name is John Barber and it's a real pleasure for me to welcome you to another performance by the Reimagined Radio Project. I appreciate you being here and it's a real pleasure to say for not only the audience here in the theater, but also for those of you that are listening at home that tonight's performance is coming to you live and direct without benefit of commercial interruption from the historic Kiggins Theater in beautiful downtown Vancouver, Washington, USA. It's a perfect night tonight for our performance. The air is crisp like the first bite from one of the apples for which the state of Washington is well known. The sky is clear and off to the west, hanging just above the horizon like a solitary red lantern is the planet Mars. Today, everyone reached by radio broadcast everywhere that you can listen to radio. It is World Audio Drama Day, created in 2013 to celebrate the pleasures of this amazing art form. Tonight, we offer our reimagined adaptation of The War of the Worlds as um, part of this worldwide celebration. Our performance tonight is adapted from the novel Mr. H. G. Wells, an English author of some renown, wrote that novel, The War of the Worlds, in which he imagined the invasion of Earth by beings from the planet Mars. The novel was first published in 1898 and has remained in print ever since. On this night in 1938, the Mercury Theater on the Air, directed by Mr. Orson Wells, shared their adaptation of the novel as a radio drama. By some accounts, the radio broadcast created a nationwide panic. On the other hand, a lot of listeners enjoyed the ability of the then relatively new radio medium to prompt their imaginations with compelling and immersive sound-based narratives. Either controversial or entertaining, the war of the worlds is often said to be the most famous radio drama ever broadcast. Our performance tonight celebrates the 80th anniversary of the original broadcast. We have taken some liberties with the setting of the story and we shift a bit back and forth in time. But for all purposes, this is what listeners heard 80 years ago on this same night. I hope you will enjoy our performance. Beyond high quality, locally produced entertainment, the intent of reimagined radio is to share with you how radio dramas like The War of the Worlds were originally produced. More than a mass medium for distributing talk, sports, or traffic reports, radio is a rich canvas with many opportunities for creative experience. You can watch that creativity tonight as voice actors and sound artists reimagine a live radio broadcast, or you can close your eyes, listen, and imagine. Reimagined Radio is a partnership between Metropolitan Performing Arts, the Creative Media and Digital Culture Program at Washington State University, Vancouver. KXRW, Vancouver's independent, non-profit community radio station who is streaming our performance live tonight all over the internet, and the historic Kiggins Theatre, built in 1936, two years before the original broadcast of the War of the Worlds. Although we represent community organizations, tonight we are all volunteers seeking to provide you with an evening of arts and culture. We thank you for joining us. If you can and would like to help, either financially or in kind, please see us after tonight's performance. Every donation is appreciated and used to provide future performances. Once again, thank you for joining us tonight, and please enjoy our performance.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, we're broadcasting and streaming live tonight from the historic Kiggins Theatre in downtown Vancouver, Washington, USA. Those of you listening are encouraged to share your thoughts via social media during the performance. Use the hashtag Reimagined Radio. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you this reimagined radio performance of The War of the Worlds.
2: that in the early years of the 21st century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, humankind has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. It was near the end of October. Business was better. The war scare was not so present. More people went back and forth and back to work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30, The Crosley service estimated that 32 million people were listening in to
4: radios.
3: For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over the Gulf of Alaska, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the Pacific Northwest, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66 minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We now take you to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Columbia in downtown Vancouver where you will be entertained by the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, from the Meridian Broom in the Columbia Hotel in Vancouver, we bring you the music of Ramon Riquello and his orchestra. Now, here is one for the dancers. Ramon Riquello and his orchestra with Don't Be That Way. <laughs>
2: Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 Pacific Time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson, retired from the observatory at Princeton and now living in Vancouver, confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomena as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Columbia Hotel situated in downtown Vancouver. (laughs) ¶¶
0: a tune that never loses favor, the ever popular ragging the scale, Ramon Ricello and his orchestra.
2: following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence we have arranged an interview with noted astronomer Professor Rowena Pearson here in Vancouver who will give us her views on the event. In a few moments, we will take you to her private observatory atop the Smith Tower in downtown Vancouver. (laughs) We return you until then to the music of Ramon Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. to take you to the top of the Smith Tower, one of the tallest buildings in Vancouver, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Rowena Pearson, famous astronomer, retired and now living here in Vancouver. We take you now to Carl Phillips.
5: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Carl Phillips here, speaking to you from the observatory of Professor Weena Pearson, retired from Princeton University and now living in Vancouver. Professor Pearson maintains this private observatory atop the Smith Tower in downtown Vancouver. I'm standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black, except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanisms of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through a giant lens. I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides her ceaseless watch on the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communications. During this period, she's in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions?
6: At any time, Mr. Phillips.
5: Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope?
6: Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disc swimming in a blue sea, transverse stripes across the disc, quite distinct because Mars happens to be at the point nearest to Earth. In opposition, as we call it.
5: In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson?
6: Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips, although that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then
5: you are quite convinced as a scientist that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars.
6: I'd say the chances against that are a thousand to one.
5: And yet how do you account for those gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals?
6: Mr. Phillips, I cannot account for it.
5: By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from Earth?
6: Approximately 40 million miles.
5: Well, that seems a safe enough distance. (laughs) Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While she reads it, let me remind you that we are speaking to you from the observatory in Vancouver, Washington, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Rowena Pearson. One moment. Please, uh, Professor Pearson has passed me a message which she has just received. Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience?
6: Certainly, Mr. Phillips.
5: <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the National History Museum, New York. 9:15 p.m. Pacific time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Vancouver. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars?
6: Hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits.
5: Thank you, Professor. ladies and gentlemen, for the past ten minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at Vancouver, bringing you a special interview with Rowena Parsons. Pearson, noted astronomer... This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our Vancouver studio.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Montreal, Canada, Professor Morse of McGill University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 and 8.20 p.m. Pacific time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes this special announcement. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Elkton, Washington, 22 miles from Vancouver. The green flash in the sky was visible within a radius of 100 miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Ariel. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word description as soon as he can reach the location. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Camas, where Bobby Millett and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. We take you now to Elkton, Washington, north of Vancouver.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again at the Wilmoth Farm in Elkton, Washington. Professor Pearson and myself made the 22 miles from Vancouver in 10 minutes to investigate a report of a meteor impact. We have just now arrived. I haven't had a chance to look around yet, but I guess, I guess that's it. I guess that's the thing directly in front of me, half buried in a vast pit. I, uh, I hardly know where to begin or how to paint for you a word picture of the strange scene before my eyes. It is like something out of a modern Arabian Nights. The object must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It, just, it must have struck on its way down. And the bodies of three elf killed at impact lie outside the crater. What I can see of the, uh, of the, of the object itself does look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. It has a diameter of... Um, uh, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say? What is the diameter?
6: About thirty yards.
5: About thirty yards. The metal of the cylinder is, well, I, I've never seen anything like it. The color is a sort of yellowish white. A, a reddish glow lingers where the metal is still hot. Curious spectators now are pressing close to the object, in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. Oh, they're getting in line of, of my front of in my in front of my line of vision. Would you mind standing to one side, please? One side now one side. While the policemen are pushing the crowd back, here's Mr. Grover Wilmoth, owner of the farm here. He may have uh, some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmoth, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard. A step closer, please. Uh, well, uh, the ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmoth. Well, well I, I was just listening to the radio. And, uh, uh, closer and louder, please. Uh, pardon me? Louder, please, and closer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I was listening to the radio, and you know, I'm kind of
1: drowsing, and
5: that professor was
1: talking about Mars, so it was kind of half dozing, half yes, yes, after.
5: yes, Mr. Wilmot. Then what happened?
1: Well, you know as I was
5: saying, I was listening to the radio,
1: kind of halfway. Yes, Mr.
5: Wilmot. And then you saw something.
1: Well, not not first. I heard something.
5: And what did you hear?
1: Well, you a hissing sound. It was kind of like. Kind of like a 4th of July rocket.
5: And then what? Well, I
1: turned my head out the window and I would have swore I was to sleep and dreaming. Yes. Well, oh, good thing I seen, seen a kind, kind of greenish streak and then zing well, the Something smacked the ground and knocked me clear out of my chair.
5: Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmoth? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. I... Uh, thank you, Mr. Wilmoth, thank you. Do you want me to tell you some more about no, it? No, no, that is quite all right. All right. All right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Grover Wilmoth, owner of the farm where this thing has fallen. Oh, I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the, the background of this, this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field back of us. Police are trying to rope off the, the roadway leading to the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Car headlights throw an enormous spot on the pit where the object's half buried. Some of the more daring souls are now venturing near the edge. Their silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with a policeman. The policeman wins. Now, now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but now it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen. Do you hear it? It's a curious scraping sound that, that seems to come from inside the object. I'll move the microphone nearer. Now, now we're not more than 25 feet away. Can you hear it now? Oh, oh, Professor Pearson.
6: Yes, Mr. Phillips?
5: Can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing?
6: Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface.
5: I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor?
6: I don't know what to think. The metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and, as you can see, of cylindrical shape. Just a minute.
5: Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This thing, the the end of the thing is beginning to flake off. Yes, the top is beginning to rotate like a screw. The thing must be hollow. It's moving! Look! The darn thing's unscrewing!
4: Keep back
7: there! Keep back, I tell ya! Well, maybe there's men in it trying to escape.
8: We could use
7: some men around here.
8: It's red hot. They'll burn to a cinder.
5: thing i have ever witnessed wait a minute someone's crawling out of the, the hollow top someone or, or something i can Ooh. see peering out of that black hole two luminous discs are they eyes I, it might be a face it might be a... good heavens good heavens something's wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake now it's another one and another they look like tentacles to me there, there I can see the thing's body it's large, large as a bear and it, and it glistens like wet leather but that face, it, ladies and gentlemen it's, it's indescribable, I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it the eyes are black and gleam like a serpent the mouth is V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate, the monster or, or whatever it is can hardly move it seems weighed down by, by possibly gravity or something the thing's raising up, the crowd falls back now, they've seen plenty is the most extraordinary experience. I cannot find the words. I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, hold on, will you please? I, I, I'll be right back in a minute.
2: bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Elkton, Washington. We now return
5: you to Carl Phillips at Elkton. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmoth's garden. From here I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk, as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About thirty of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They are willing to keep their distance. The captain is conferring with someone. I can't quite see who it is. Oh, oh yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, now they've parted. The Professor moves around one side, studying the object. While the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. What well, something? I can't quite see what it is. Hey, it's a white it's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. A flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, if they know what anything means... Wait, 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 something is happening. A humped shape is is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against the mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror, and it it, it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Oh, good Lord, they're turning into flame. Now the whole field is caught on fire the woods, the barn, the gas tanks of automobiles. It's spreading everywhere. It's coming this way. About 20 yards to my right.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Elkton, Washington. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indacoffer, speaking at the dinner of the California Astronomical Society, Express the opinions that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. Here in Vancouver, the Mount St. Helens Volcanic Institute reports an increase in earthquake activity under the mountain. No reports on whether an eruption is likely. We now continue with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been handed a message that came in from Elkton by telephone. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Elkton, their bodies badly burned and distorted. The next voice you hear will be that of General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Olympia, Washington. I have been
9: authorized by the government of Washington to place the counties of Clark, Cowlitz, and Skamania as far west as Vancouver and east to Carson under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by the state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Olympia to Vancouver, and will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military
2: operations. Thank you. You have been listening to General Montgomery Smith commanding the state militia at Olympia. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Elkton are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawl back into their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. Combined fire departments of Clark County are fighting the flames, which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Elkton, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you, uh, just one moment, please. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Rowena Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Elfton, Washington, where she has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, she will give you her explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Rowena Pearson, brought to you by Direct Wire. Professor Pearson.
6: Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mills, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purpose here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to this mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It is all too evident these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It is my guess that in some way, they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. This is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray.
2: Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Elkton, Washington. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred remains of Carl Phillips have been identified in a local hospital. He was killed during the heat ray attack. Here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C. The Office of the Director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia stationed outside Elkton. Here is a bulletin from State Police, Vancouver. The fires at Elkton and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit and no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, Vice President of Operations.
1: KXRW has received a request from the militia at Olympia to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation, and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Olympia.
2: We take you now to the field headquarters of the state militia near Elkton, Washington.
8: This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps, attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Elkton, Washington. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, is surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry. Without heavy field pieces but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway... It's an interesting outing for the troops. I can almost make out their khaki uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. It looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Weaver Creek. Probably fire started by campus. Well, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust, and it will all be over. Now wait a minute. I see something on the top of the cylinder oh, no it's nothing nothing but a shadow now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmoth Farm. the 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube <laughs> wait that wasn't a shadow was something moving solid metal kind of a shield like affair I was up out of the cylinder and it's going higher Higher. higher. It's standing on legs. Actually reeling up on a, a sort of a metal framework. And it's reaching up above, above the trees. And the searchlights are on it. Now hold on.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible, as it may seem. Both the ob- observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that these strange beings who landed in the Washington farmlands and forests tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Elkton, Washington has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by any army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The monster is now in control of the middle section of Washington and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down. Railroad tracks are torn and service is discontinued. Highways to the north, south, and east are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Portland, Spokane, and Seattle it is estimated to twice their normal populations. At this time, martial law prevails throughout Southwest Washington and Northwest Oregon. We take you now to Washington, D.C. for a special broadcast on the national emergency. Ladies and gentlemen, the Secretary of the Interior.
1: Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need for calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. Now, in the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on the earth.
2: I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington, D.C. Numerous bulletins are arriving in our studio. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on planet Mars. Majority voice opinion that enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. Attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Vancouver who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared she is lost in the recent battle. Pearson Field, Vancouver, scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops moving south toward the Columbia River with population fleeing ahead of them. The machines stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Another bulletin from Pearson Field, Vancouver, fleet of army Army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. Uh, Just just one moment, please. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we have run special wires to the artillery line in the adjacent areas to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery located in the Cascade Mountains.
8: Range. 32 meters 32 meters projection 39 degrees 39 degrees fire
7: 140 yards to the right sir
8: shift range 31 meters 31 meters projection 37 degrees
5: 37 degrees fire
7: hit, sir. We got the tripod of one of them. They've stopped. The others are trying to repair it.
8: Quick. Get the range. Shift. 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection. 27 degrees.
5: 27 degrees.
7: Ah! Can't see the shell land, sir. They're letting off a smoke. What is it? A A black smoke, sir, moving this way, lying close to the ground. It's moving fast.
8: Deploy gas mass. Ready to fire. Shift. Twenty-four meters. Twenty-four meters. Projection. Twenty-four
7: degrees. Twenty-four degrees. Fire! Still can't see, sir. The smoke's coming nearer. Hit the range. Twenty-three meters. <coughs> 20. <laughs> twenty three <laughs> projection at
4: twenty two
0: <laughs> degrees. <laughs> Army bombing plane V eight four three over Woodland, Washington. Lieutenant Boe, commanding eight bombers. This is Bo, reporting to Commander Fairfax, Pearson Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by three machines from the scapoose Oregon cylinder, six altogether. One machine already crippled, believed hit by a shell from Army gun in Cascade Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hangs close to the earth of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now crossing Columbia River into the Vanport Marshes. Another straddles the Interstate Bridge. Evident objective is Portland. They're pushing down the high tension power station. The machines are close together now. We're ready to attack. Planes circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards and we'll be over the first. 800 yards. 600. 400. 200. There they go. The giant arm raised. Green flash. They're spraying up the plane. 2,000 feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them. Plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. Eight.
1: This is Soviet Island, Oregon, calling Pearson Field, Vancouver. This is Soviet Island, calling Pearson Field. Come in, please.
3: This is Pearson Field. Go ahead.
1: Eight Army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Vanport Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of...
9: This is Vanport, Oregon... This is Vanport, Oregon. Warning. Poisonous gas smoke pouring in from surrounding marshes. Reaches South Street. Gas masks useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobile use routes 7, 23, 24. Avoid the interstate bridge. Smoke now spreading up Washington Street.
10: 2X2L, calling CQ, 2X2L, calling CQ, 2X2L, calling 8X3R, come in please.
5: This is 8X3R, coming back at 2X2L.
10: How's reception? How's reception? Where are you? 8X3R. 8X3R, what's the matter? Where are you?
7: I'm speaking from the roof of the Smith Tower in downtown Vancouver, Washington. I'm the only one left. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as the Martians approach. The rest of the station staff fled more than an hour ago. I estimate in the last two hours, 30,000 people have moved out along the roads to the north. Pacific Highway is still open for motor traffic. To the south, avoid bridges to Hayden Islands, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Oregon shore closed 10 minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army wiped out, artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. I'll stay here till the end. People are holding service in the cathedral below.
5: Now I look along the
7: waterfront, all manner of boats overloaded with fleeing population pulling out from the docks of the shore. Streets are all jammed. Noise in the crowd like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute. Enemy now in sight on the heights above Fort Vancouver. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing river. I, I can see it from here, waiting the Columbia like a man wading through a brook. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. It-, it seems to be timed and spaced. And now the first machine reaches the shore He stands watching, looking over the city His steel cowlish head is even with the buildings along the waterfront He waits for the others They rise like a line of new towers in the city's southern shore And now they're lifting their metal hands Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it! This is the end now! Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city People in the streets see it now, they're running away from the river thousands of them, but the smoke is faster, spreading, people trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies, and now the smoke surrounding the base of the Smith Tower, rising 100 yards away. It's 50 feet.
10: X2L CQ. Two X2L? CQ. Two X2L calling C Q. Vancouver. Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Is it there? Anyone? 2X2L.
3: You are listening to a reimagined radio dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief interlude. This is Reimagined Radio. You are listening to The War of the Worlds a radio drama performed by Reimagined Radio. We continue now with our performance.
6: As I set these notes down on paper, I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living person on earth. I have been hiding in this empty house near Elkton, Washington, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in this world now seems part of another life, a life that has no continuity with the present. Furtive existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Rowena Pearson. I look down at my, my blackened hands, my torn shoes, my tattered clothes, and I try to connect them with a professor who lives in Vancouver and who on the night of October 30th glimpsed through her telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my, my world. Where, where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Rowena Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there's no human hands left to wind the clocks? And writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of stars. But to write, I must live. And to live, I must eat. I find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. I keep watch at the window. From time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length there's a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam, as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. It's morning. 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 Sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas has lifted, and the scorched meadow to the north looks as though a black snowstorm has passed over them. I venture from the house and I make my way to the road. No traffic. Here and there are wrecked cars, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. I push on south and west. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them and I keep a careful watch. I have seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of the trees, I am ready to fling myself on the earth. I come to an apple tree. October apples are ripe, and I fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vaguely southerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I noticed a living creature... A small gray squirrel. In that moment, the animal and I shared the same emotion the joy of finding another living being. I push on south. I find dead cows in a brackish field beyond the charred ruins of a dairy. The silo remains standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse deserted by the sea. Astride the silo, perches a weathercock, and the arrow points south. Next day, I come to a, a large complex, vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its building strangely dwarfed and leveled off, as if a giant sliced through them with a capricious sweep of his hand. I reached the outskirts of Ridgefield, undemolished, but humbled by some whim of advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it and it rose up and became a man, Oh, a man armed with a large knife and others too, survivors. Stop!
10: Where did you come from?
6: I, I come from many places, a long time ago, Vancouver. Vancouver, huh? But you're coming from Elkton. Yes.
9: <laughs> Elkton, <laughs> there's no food here, this is our country. At this end of town and on to the river. There's only food for us. Which way are you
6: going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for... for people. What was that? Did you hear something just then? Only a bird. A live bird.
1: Uh, You you get to know that. The birds have shadows these days. Uh, uh, Say, uh, we're here out here in the open. Let's crawl over in that doorway. Maybe we can talk.
3: Have you seen any Martians? Nah, they've gone toward Vancouver. At night, the sky is alive with their lights, just as if people were still living there. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big in that direction. I believe they're learning how to fly.
6: Fly? Yeah, fly. Then it's all over with humanity. There's just us left. They got
0: themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't
6: anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in uniform.
9: Yeah, what's left of it. I was in the militia, part of the gunnery squad. We wounded one of the, their machines before they let loose with the black smoke. Killed my squad. I escaped. Wasn't any war more than there is war between humans and ants.
6: And we're eatable ants. I found that out. Watch them feed. What will they do with us?
7: We've thought it all out. Right now we're caught as we're wanted. The Martians only have to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run, and they won't keep doing that. They'll begin catching us, systematic-like, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things that they haven't begun on us yet.
1: Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we haven't had the sense enough to keep quiet bothering them with guns and such and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of our rushing around blind, we got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Mm -hmm. Cities, nations, civilization, progress.
6: It's all done. But if that's so, what is there to live for?
3: (laughs) Well, there won't be any more Christmas boat parades for a million years or so. No nice little dinners at restaurants? No bridge across the river. No craft beers or regional wines. No more of that popcorn from Kiggins theater. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up.
6: And what is there left? Life, that's what. We want to live, yeah, and so do you. We're not gonna be exterminated, and we don't mean to be caught either and tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do?
0: We're going on, right under their feet. We got a plan. We humans as humankind are finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we've got a chance. And we've got to live and keep
6: free while we learn, see? We thought it all out, see? Tell me the rest.
9: Well, it isn't all of us that were made for wild beasts. And that's what it's going to be. All these little office workers that used to live in these houses... They'd be no good. They haven't any stuff to them. They just used to run off to work. We've seen hundreds of them running wild to catch their commuter trains in the morning for fear they're going to get canned if they didn't. Running back at night, afraid that they wouldn't make it time for dinner. Lives insured and little invested in case of accidents. And on Sunday, worried about the hereafter. The Martians will be godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages, good food, careful breeding. No worries. After a week or so of chasing about the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught.
6: You've thought it all out, haven't you? (laughs) You bet
7: we have. And that isn't all. These Martians will make pets of some of them. Train them to do tricks, who knows. Get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. And some, maybe they'll train to hunt us.
6: No, that's impossible.
7: No human being.
6: Yes, they will.
1: There's humans that will do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me, why...
6: In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we
3: to live when the Martians own the Earth? We've got it all figured out. We'll live underground. We've been thinking about the sewers. The main ones are big enough for anybody. Then there's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels. You begin to see, eh? And we'll get a bunch of strong people together. No weak ones, that rubbish, out.
6: And you meant me to go. Well, we gave you a chance, didn't we? Oh, we won't quarrel about that, go on.
9: And uh, we've got to make a safe places for us to stay in, see? And get all them books we can from like those science books. That way, people like us, when we come and see, we'll raid the historical museums and library will even spy on the Martians. It may not be much we have to do or much we have to learn. Just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat ray right and left and not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them. But humans. Humans who have learned the way how. It may even be In our time, gee, imagine having one of them lovely things with its heat ray wide and free. We'll turn it on Martians. (laughs) We'll turn it on humans. We'll bring everybody down to their knees.
6: That's your plan? You and us and a few more of us and we'll own the world. I see. Say, what's the
7: matter? Where are you going?
6: And not to your world. Goodbye, strangers. After parting with the survivors, I came at last to Vancouver. I was anxious to know the fate of the city. Cautiously, I made my way down the highway to where it turned into Main Street. I wandered through the Lincoln and the Hauk neighborhoods. I reached 14th Street and there again were black powder and several bodies and an evil ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I stood alone looking over the railroad yard. I caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in its jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at its heels. He made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. I walked up Mainton in the direction of the strange powder, past silent shop windows, displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks, past the Kiggins Theater, silent and dark, past a shooting gallery where Now a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks. I watched a flock of blackbirds circling in the sky near Fort Vancouver. I hurried there. I I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine standing next to the bandstand on the parade ground, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. I rushed recklessly towards the location. From there I could see, standing in a silent row down towards the river, Nineteen of those great metal titans, their cows empty and their great steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of blackbirds that circled to the ground. And there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians, with their hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later when their bodies were examined in the laboratories it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive bacteria against which their system were unprepared, slain after all man's defenses had failed by the humblest thing that God in his wisdom put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell there was a general persuasion that through all of deep space no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I have conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastness of space. But that is a remote dream. It may be that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them and not to us, the future ordained perhaps. Strange. It now seems to sit in my peaceful study in Vancouver, writing down this last chapter of their record begun at a destroyed farm in Elkton. Strange to see from my window the cathedral spires dim and blue throughout an April haze. Strange to watch children playing in the streets and strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the historical museum where the dissembled parts of the Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it, bright and clean cut, hard and silent, under the dawn of that last great day.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, 80 years ago, on this same night, the War of the Worlds radio drama was first broadcast live across the country. As was the case then, 80 years ago, our performance of this radio drama tonight was intended as a holiday offering, a reimagined radio version of dressing up in a sheet, jumping out of a bush, and saying, boo starting now we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night so we did the next best thing we annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the surrounding area you will be relieved i hope to learn that everything happened in your imagination and that vancouver and the surrounding areas are unscathed and open for business vanport however, is gone. (laughs) And Elkton has been renamed Battleground. (laughs) So, thank you and remember the terrible lesson you learned tonight. If your doorbell rings and nobody's there, it's not Halloween. That could be a Martian.
3: Tonight, through a partnership between the Creative Media and Digital Culture Program at Washington State University, Vancouver, KXRW-FM, Vancouver's Community Radio, Kiggins Theater, and Metropolitan Performing Arts, the Reimagined Radio Project and its affiliated stations Coast to Coast have brought to you The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, featuring members of our community's performing arts scene. Tonight, our actors are... Steve Becker, Joe Clemens, Greg Schilling, Ariana Dorenbosch, Rebecca Kramer, Nick Diatore. Brett Allred, Calvin Laurence, Kristen Heller, John Barber, Barbara Richardson, and music by Matt Frislong. If you enjoyed the War of the Worlds, please join us next month when we present a dramatization of local legend D.B. Cooper. In December, join us for our holiday performance of A Radio Christmas Carol. This is Reimagined Radio.
1: are many things that we can all do that may help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but one thing we can all do is to have a plan in case you do get sick. First, consult with your health care provider for more information about monitoring your health for symptoms suggestive of COVID-19. Second, stay in touch with others by phone or email. You may need to ask for help from friends, family, neighbors, community health workers, or more if you become sick. And finally, determine who can care for you if your caregiver gets sick. For more information, go to cdc.gov
4: and be well, everyone.